Welcome to Guerrilla Radio, recorded February 25th, 2023. Well, last weekend saw mass anti-war demonstrations around the United States and Europe. In Washington, D.C., rage against the war machine manifested in the very heart, if not the soul, of the nation, with speakers and activists from a variety of pursuits and political persuasions agreeing to forego their disagreements on other issues for the moment to focus on the rolling disaster that is the global war machine. Jeremy Kuzmarov is a journalist and author who also serves as managing editor at Covert Action Magazine and and he was there too. Jeremy Kuzmarov and dispatch from D.C. in the first half. And on February 9th, the train derailed outside East Palestine, Ohio. The toxic cargo purposefully ignited in a disastrously ill-advised attempt at environmental remediation after the fact. David Rovick's new song, East Palestine, is a modern ballad of an old American story of the venality and base corruption culminating in that Ohio catastrophe. David's recent article, too, Communications for Indie Musicians, Then and Now, is a reflection not only on his quarter century making a living as a touring musician, but of living and working in our mediated times. David Rovix on killing the messenger in these end days of media in the second half. But first, Jeremy Kuzmarov and raging for peace in America. Jeremy Kuzmarov, welcome back to the program. It's great to be with you again. Well, now, Jeremy, it's always great to speak with you. You were there. You were at the Rage Against the War Machine demo. What, I saw a little bit of it on live stream, but what was it like to be there? Uh, it was great. Uh, I think it was a really nice atmosphere. There was a really um, nice vibe about it. Um, you know, people were, were friendly. There were groups of, you know, different kinds of political and ideological outlooks uh, represented. The speakers emphasized the that, you know, we're really in the crisis here and, and we've got to focus on this. We've got to put aside some of our differences and come together to stop this war machine, to stop the push toward world war, toward nuclear war. Uh, and it's almost trivial, you know, you can argue about uh, uh, race issues or, or women's rights issues, uh, LGBTQ or, you know, uh, taxation, but uh, which is kind of normal give and take of politics. But this is really uh, a major uh, crisis. And I think Jimmy Dore had one of the best lines. He said, you know, if your house is on fire, you're not going to quiz the uh, fireman about his views on, you know, transgender rights. Because, you know, sometimes they you know, invoke these issues, they're kind of side issues to facilitate divisions. And, you know, Dora also made the point, and Dora's a comedian, he's a really sharp guy, really funny and really sharp in his political analysis. And, you know, he said they want you to hate your neighbor. You know, that's a trick of the oligarchy. And really, we have a lot more in common with each other. And they bring in these issues that are designed to, to inflame people. It, it divides people kind of almost artificially. And that was his point. Now, we've got to come together or face a crisis of democracy in the United States and a, a, a government that's just gone off the rail. They're provoking war with Russia and China at the same time, two major nuclear armed powers and a potential nuclear war. And another excellent line by Tulsi Gabbard, who was a speaker, and she said, people at this demonstration are united by one thing. We value human life, and we want to see it go on. We don't want to see people killed senselessly, and that's what's going on right now. And we've got to build as wide a coalition as possible to stop that insanity, these insane leaders. And, and really, the terrorist government, what Seymour Hersh revealed, you know, they're blowing up a pipeline in an act of 
overt act of war, and these are terrorists who have to be stopped. You know, I, I think in the Vietnam era, there were similar efforts. You know, people of uh, different persuasion came together to oppose a criminal war in Vietnam. Uh, the Occupy Wall Street rally brought uh, people with a lot of, I mean, they were the same diagnosis, I think, in the Occupy movement about the 1% and predatory nature of Wall Street, but there were different uh, ideas about how to confront uh, the problems. Uh, so, I mean, I think, you know, that's what politics is messy sometimes. You know, you, you have to forge coalitions with others to build a, a, a as you know effective movement as possible when you're fighting for a certain goal. In this case, reign in the warfare state and, and, and cease to drive toward World War III. And that really is a, a, a you know, major and, and should be of utmost importance for almost everybody to join in this movement. And, um, you know, this was, I think, the beginning of a large movement. Of the You know, uh, Nick Brandon was one of the organizers. He's the head of the People's Party. And he said this was the largest anti-war rally since the Iraq War broke out 20 years ago. And it's much needed. And a lot of people, yeah, are waking up because, you know, we've seen the last two, in those 20 years, we've seen a lot of wars and killing, but it, they've been these, you know, far off wars like in Libya and Syria involving small numbers of U.S. Uh, people uh, fighting the war. So it hasn't commanded the, the attention. But now I think a lot of people are seeing a threat of nuclear war uh, and they're waking up and they're joining this movement. And they're willing to ally with people. Uh, you know, they may have different visions of government, the role of government in society. The libertarian want a small government with low taxes. Uh, you know, people on the left, uh, a different vision, higher taxes and, you know, uh, on the wealthy. But uh, they, they see that it doesn't really matter. I mean, we're not going to have a livable future if this madness continues. So. Well, and it doesn't matter either if you've got higher, if you've got low taxes, if all the taxes are devoted to uh, a war, the warfare industries. Yeah, well, that that a lot of these speeches were you know the same. You couldn't tell the speaker was what his background was because they were all saying the same thing. We don't want our money invested, our tax you know dollars invested in this war machine. We want the tax dollars invested in our communities, in in healthcare, and education, and environment. And I think everyone agrees that, you know, and you can debate how much to tax, but everyone wants to see the money spent, um, you know, spent well. And that's we're, we're seeing a government that is squandering trillions of dollars. You know, we saw uh, just on a, a you know a cost benefit analysis. I mean, trillions of dollars were squandered in Afghanistan into a corrupt government and a sinkhole. I mean, they were expose that that the U.S. was basically funding the Taliban. That the you know the um, army you know, had to pay bribes to the Taliban and the the car you know Karzai and, and Ghani governments were basically supporting the, the Taliban. They both came from Pashtun. You know, Kar, uh, Ghani and Karzai were both Pashtun, and they were kind of actually friendly. They wanted the war to keep going on because it was a cash cow for them. It was just a racket, and we're seeing the same kind of thing in Ukraine. I mean, the, one of the most it's it was voted the most corrupt government, numerous. Uh, you know, polls and uh, watchdogs uh, listed Ukraine as the most corrupt government in Europe. It's among the most corrupt governments in the world, in fact. Uh, so, uh, American, I think, could spend their taxpayer better than than you know funneling that money into a sinkhole. I mean, it's known that that money will just prolong the war. I mean, Russia is a much bigger country than Ukraine, and eventually will prevail in any conflict. 
by you know pu- putting that money in all those weapons, you're just prolonging the war, prolonging the death and agony of the people. And what's the use of that? It's blocking any possible you know negotiation. So there's there's nothing positive. When it comes to the the racket of the the war machine, when you say all this money, the trillion dollars in Afghanistan, for example, it, well, it wasn't exactly frittered because somebody made those trillion dollars. That that money went somewhere, and most of it went to companies within the United States, not in Afghanistan. And Julian Assange, had, and I'll, I'll risk bastardizing his quote, but he, he said that this is this is a laundry. This the Afghan war was a laundry. A, a cycling uh, operation to take money out of the pockets of the U.S. taxpayers and their allies, too, and cycle it through the uh, military-industrial complex, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And that that money is being stolen from the American people. And you wonder why many would become libertarian. They don't want to pay any tax at all. Uh, to a government that that squandered every last last penny that enriches these uh, predatory uh, uh, capitalist profiteers who would profit off the misery and death and suffering uh, of people uh, in foreign land like Afghanistan and Ukraine. And they used to call them merchants of death. And I would hope to see more protests uh, against these parasites as Chris, uh, Chris Hedges had a very powerful speech at the rally, and he referred to them as parasites as well as the leaders. Uh, you know, um, and he re- referenced the decaying empire, and this is the other corruption and soullessness and, and lack of humanity uh, of those uh, who profit off these uh, criminal uh, interventions. It used to be called war profiteering as well, and, and was criminal during the, the Second War period, where people found to be gouging the government because of the, the wartime needs they could be held criminally responsible. And that goes on today uh, quite often. And in fact, they're very limited uh, oversight. You know, there have been exposés how the Pentagon has lost track of trillions of dollars in money and how these companies like General Dynamics and Raytheon and Lockheed overbill the government. Uh, so it, it's just pure highway robbery. And, uh, you know, I, I'm glad to see at least the beginning uh, a pushback with this hopefully this movement will grow yeah well you finish your your uh, article on uh, on uh, your reflections of being there left and right joined together to rage against ukraine war on its one year anniversary by saying that potentially this event could mark the beginning of a revived anti-war movement that affects real political change well yeah nick Branagh said that this was the biggest uh, and i don't know if this is correct or not i, I sort of hope it isn't but that this was the biggest uh, manifestation since the Iraq war. And, and if people old enough may remember February 15th of 2003, before the bombs started dropping in the second desert storm uh, operation against that country, the hundreds of thousands, millions of people that came out into the streets uh, in world capitals around the globe uh, it, to demonstrate against that war, th- through the uh, the um, streaming services that I was watching the event, I couldn't really get an idea. I didn't see any big long shots. What what kind of attendance did it have in D.C.? Uh, it was fairly sizable. Uh, there were people estimating a few thousand. You know, it's impossible for me to estimate with any precision. 
it was you know a significant number you know it wasn't uh like iraq i, I was present 2003 i was living in boston massachusetts and i uh, was a, st a graduate student and we had a student walkout we had a small rally on the campus although you know many of the professors hid in their offices and were actually supporting the war you know contrary to the myth uh, the you know radical leftist professor. There were a small number of professors who were part of this event. Uh, they tended to be in English, and and there was one guy in the physics department. I I rode the train with him. We met with students from Harvard and other schools, and joined a huge rally in downtown Boston uh, that shut down the city for the day. Yeah, it was uh, I don't know the number, but it was you know uh, tens of thousands of people. And all the businessmen we marched down the business center. They were all waving. They were against the war. So, um, yeah, that was massive. This was not nearly that level, but there were, it was significant. It wasn't just a small, you know, it was definitely above a thousand people. Well, and you, you mentioned some of the uh, the political actors that came out, uh, Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich, Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, some of these, uh, these people are, are substantial in their fields, if not in the in the mainstream of uh, American political discourse, exactly. Yeah, they made it pretty far. <laughs> They're former congressmen, you know, presidential candidates. Uh, I mean, they speak very well. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, I think, is a very eloquent speaker. And as I said, she had good word. You know, she said that, again, people were united, uh, that they want to live. They want to see life flourish. And, you know, Dennis Kucinich had a very good speech, uh, and he was... He even mentioned, we won't get into it now, but the, you know, he was discussing basically the, the tyrannical nature of the American government, and he referenced the COVID, the censorship uh, of anyone with an you know, alternative view to the dominant narrative uh, of COVID, and he gained a function research, and, and he said they're, you know, they're, um, they're just you know, involved in these like, um, geopolitical chess games where human life means not, they're willing to sacrifice human life. And he mentioned that Taiwan will be the next Ukraine. And, you know, he called for a regeneration uh, in the country. And, and he basically called for regime change. Actually, uh, you know, when I attended the Boston years ago, one of the keynote speakers at the Boston rally I attended against Iraq war was Howard Zinn, the late historian, who had been a professor at Boston University, author of People's History of the United States. And I remember he called for regime change at home, you know, the Bush administration, and everybody was cheering. And Kucinich basically said, we need to replace this government. It's gone way off the rails, and it threatened the, to destroy the entire country. And it's increasingly tyrannical, and he was basically calling for regime change. Um, so, you know, Chris Hedges called for massive civil disobedience against this war machine. So these were some of the uh, uh, demand, you know, what, what people are saying. But I, I think we've gotten to that point where it's so bad that this can't go on, or that we are self-destructing. Well, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Grilled Radio. I'm speaking today with Jeremy Kuzmarov. Jeremy is a journalist and author, and he's also the managing editor at CovertActionMagazine.com, who, as it happens, Jeremy, you're in the middle of your winter fundraising um, campaign. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, well, we do have a webinar, if you're uh, free, on Monday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. 
We have a webinar on this topic on the military-industrial complex, and we have four great speakers. You can go on www.covertactionmagazine.com, and you can also see uh, the array of articles we put out, and any uh, donation would be much appreciated because we're trying you know, to crack through the disinformation and propaganda, and I think that's one thing that's holding back the growth of a real uh, strong and effective uh, mass movement against war and, and for social transformation is that the media stronghold has really you know brainwashed so many in the public into believing uh, the U.S. government narrative about whether it's COVID, about the war in Ukraine, and Zelensky you know, is presented as Winston Churchill yes. uh, and, and some kind of great Democrat standing up to Putin's authoritarianism when it's, it's Zelensky's government that banned 13 parties and that have been carrying out Phoenix-style operations to uh, round up uh, dissidents and, and jail them, and in many cases assassinate them, and then carrying out international terrorism like the car bomb attack that killed uh, the daughter of uh, Alexander Dugin, a Russian philosopher. Daughter was murdered through a car bomb attack. So uh, that's emblematic of kind of terrorist government. Uh, that's you know, somehow he's magically transformed this great Democrat. Uh, through the uh, media propaganda. So, you know, we're trying to tell the truth and, and to do good research on these topics and, and uh, you know, challenge the misinformation. So if you can support us, spread the word about us, support us financially, even with a small donation, uh, I think you're serving a good cause, uh, an urgent one, which is to uh, better inform the American public because I think also, you know, we've seen a lot of people like young people, they, they're mad, they see there's corruption, but they lack direction. You know, a lot of the protests we saw in the last few years have centered on like issues like police brutality and like, you know, they're trying to bring down monuments of historical figures. But that's kind of like, you know, that's not helping people who are suffering from economic hardship. And I mean, police brutality is an important issue, but... This movement really has to broaden. I mean, again, we're facing a, a very serious crisis where we could be on the threat of World War III and nuclear war breaking out. And we're spending nearly the, the military budget that they passed was uh, close to a trillion dollars uh, when there's uh, you know, a deterioration of quality of life indicators, when the education system is grossly underfunded, the transportation system, the healthcare system. So we need a movement uh, to fundamentally you know, transform the system, but we need people who are better informed about what's going on. So we feel we have a vital niche to play. Uh, and, and our magazine focuses a lot on foreign policy and exposing covert operation and manipulation by the CIA and, and deep state. And there's no other publication that does that. Well, and if you want to take part in the Teach and Go, uh, the webinar is February 27th, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. How the War Industry Shapes U.S. Foreign Policy, go to covertactionmagazine.com and you can find out how to register to, to be a part of that. When you're talking about Zelensky, yeah, his appearance in, in the, at the parliament in the, in the uh, United Kingdom, the BBC was gushing, gushing about that appearance. And as you said, it, it, depicting him as the great Democrat and comparing him to the godlike figure of Winston Churchill, if godlike at least for the, the British. Zelensky, again, as I outline, he's banned you know, 13 opposition parties. He's carried out terrorist acts. He overtly provoked the war uh, with the Russians. 
uh, and you know he's supporting you know you know neo-Nazi groups that they commit egregious war crime and, and atrocities. So uh, he's he's had a horrible record in just a few years. People in the United States, Canada, Britain, I guess, are beneficiary of the British, the British Empire and the plunder of third world countries. Uh, so they just kind of shut out all the bad associated uh, with those empires and revere the, the the key architects of those empires, even though they have really bloody, blood-stained hands. And that's that's kind of sad. Well, when you mentioned the trillion dollars that went into Afghanistan over the 20 years that uh, of overt American involvement there, they haven't reached that uh, nearly that much money in uh, Ukraine so far, but they're on a blistering pace. And in fact, I saw a, a, a factoid today that uh, maybe you can tell me if this is correct or not, that uh, American military spending and aid to Ukraine has already exceeded the entire annual budget of Russia's military uh, expense. Is, is, does that sound right to you? I read that somewhere. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah, it's just an obscene amount of money, and I mean, it's almost unique in history that a for, uh, one country is so dependent on outsiders and receives so much. And to what end? I mean, how long? You know, Ukraine, from some estimates, has lost. I don't know how many, but they've lost at least. I think estimates upward of two hundred thousand Ukrainians have died. Uh, I mean, where are they going to get? And apparently, they're now enlisting. Uh, from some reports I read, they may be enlisting child soldiers to fight, and they're going to run out of manpower. I mean, they're going to run out of able adult males who can fight. So to what end is this weaponry going? I mean, this was there was the Minsk agreements. This conflict could have easily been prevented, and there was an easy solution uh, that Russia had supported many times over, and that would be in the interest of the Ukrainian population to sign the Minsk Agreements. And, I mean, Ukraine is, is Russia's neighbor. Uh, so it, it's really in the Ukrainian interest to have good relations with Russia. And the Minsk Agreements, you know, they wouldn't have lost any territory. Now they're going to lose territory. Already they've lost a lot of territory. So Ukraine has gained nothing from this war except the immiseration of its people and death. Uh, entire generations uh, are being wiped out. Uh, so, I mean, I think Zelensky is surely the worst leader uh, in, in Ukrainian history. He sold his own people out for his own fame in the West. I, I've never seen such a, uh, just, uh, you know, the term, uh, somebody who would sell, sell out his own people like that is really very rare, even in, in the annals of history, who would uh, invoke the destruction of his own people just so he could be on the cover of GQ magazine or something. And he's, you know, he's what he's doing is he's deindustrializing the Ukrainian economy and turning it over to Western corporations. And he's passed all these uh, regressive labor laws. So just further how he's he's uh, ensured the immiseration of his own population. Well, to be fair to Zelensky, that that uh, turning over of the Ukrainian economy to the foreigners has, has been underway for uh, at least a, a decade now. And, and Joe yeah, Biden yeah, is no small part. Of it, yeah. Yeah. To pay, yeah, the and, only one, but, he, but he's furthered it. So, uh, and I wonder too if if this money isn't just as Assange uh, said of Afghanistan, it's it's not merely just another great laundromat where 
tens of billions of dollars are being shoveled from the taxpayers of America and other countries, these allies and Canada, sadly, being one of them into the pockets of the military industrial complex. Uh, the Prime Minister's Office of Canada came out yesterday with a press release uh, titled Supporting Ukraine for as long as it takes. It's full of bellicose language, uh, propaganda uh, fueled language denigrating to Russia and its leader and, and so forth and so on. And then with promises of yet billions of more Canadian tax dollars to be uh, spent providing weaponry uh, to continue. They can count on uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and his minister, Christia Freeland, to, quote, support Ukraine for as long as it takes. An open-ended war, it seems. Well, it seemed that, that these leaders are not, are not representing their own population, uh, and it's high time yet that there is a, a revolt. I mean, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson you know, said, I mean, uh, it is healthy in any bo uh, body politic. You periodically have to have uh, revolts, uh, otherwise leaders, uh, you know, just uh, become increasingly uh, corrupt. And that's that's what we're seeing. We're seeing uh, leaders not beholden to their own population. Uh, they're involved in this uh, crusade that's a morally bankrupt one, and that's as you say, just enriching weapons contractors uh, who who keep them in power, fund their political parties, and it's just you know leading to a potential world war and you know, ultimately self-destruction of their own society. And I mean, you know, I, Canada, like the U.S., has faced, I mean, I lived in Canada and I lived through constant budget cuts, just like in the United States, the, the impoverishment of public institutions, the impoverishment of higher education. You know, leaders have no commitment to developing a, a good society at home. Uh, and, and you know, instead, they're involved in these uh, senseless wars, and it's just—it's not a government that that's serving the the needs of their populations, and it should be challenged. Uh, and, and you know, it, it's 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 approaching a revolutionary hour, I think, in the U.S. and Canada. And as economy deteriorate more and more, I think we'll be involved. Uh, unfortunately, that movement can become very nihilistic and, and destructive. That we're seeing that in the United States with the growth of the far right and these proud boys, because people are angry at the government, but they don't have a good direction. That their progressive movements are not organizing them effectively, and so you have this danger of fascism uh, in the United States and other Western countries too. Well, it's Jeremy Kuzmaroff. The website is covertactionmagazine.com. Jeremy is the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and the Russians Are Coming Again with John Marciano, written way back in 2018. It seems like another age. Before we go, Jeremy, can you reiterate the, um, the webinar, please? It's a webinar on the military-industrial complex. And we invite the debate and discussion, and we'll have uh, uh, four speakers. Yeah, I'll be one of the speakers. Another is William Astor, who's a, um, a former Air Force veteran yeah, who writes for TomDispatch.com. And a Joan Roloffs, who published a book called The Trillion Dollar Silencer, which is a really important study, yeah, which shows how uh, you know the, the the reach of the military is so deep in American society, and how they very you know strategically like place military bases 
in almost all, all the states in the United States and you know, in remote rural areas, so they become kind of lifeblood of the economy in a particular region, and that uh, basically uh, is a way to um, to uh, block dissent against it because so many people's livelihood ultimately depend on it. And you know, they're very active in, in charitable works, and they spend a lot on advertising, uh, so they create this um, positive image of the military. Uh, so she goes into those kind of things in her study, which I would highly recommend. And she'll be there. And the uh, fourth speaker is a guy named Christian Sorensen, who wrote a book called Understanding the War Industry. And both those books are published by Clarity Press, which is a very uh, avant-garde publisher that publishes many important books critiquing and exposing the truth behind U.S. foreign policy and uh, presenting a critical perspective on world affairs. So check out their website, Clarity Press. And these are two good books published by them, The Trillion Dollar Silencer, and Christian Sorensen's book, Understanding the War Industry, which is all about what we're talking about, and he really goes in depth about this industry um, and, and how it has evolved and some of the key players, and I learned a lot from reading the book, uh, and you can as well. Yeah, you're right. Clarity Press, I've had a number of their authors on this show in the past. Again, it's How the War Industry Shapes U.S. Foreign Policy, February 27th, 7 p.m. Eastern. Go to covertactionmagazine.com to find out how to register for that. Thanks a lot, Jeremy, for coming on again, eh? Thanks for having me. Anytime. My pleasure. Well, and I want everyone else to stick around. David Rovix is coming straight up in the second half. When nothing is as it's presented. It's a bit like discovering that your favorite uncle has um, taken you for walks in the park, discover that he's, a, he's really a serial abuser. You need a different source. Guerrilla Radio, a century of news every Thursday and Saturday. train came through in the center of Lac Megantic blue scores of people died that night what's been done since then to set things right they'd like to know in East Palestine trains derailed in Washington State talked about too little, too late. The industry lobby both sides of the aisle. Legalized bribery, American style. Ask the folks in East Palestine. Welcome back to Guerrilla Radio. Well, on February 9th, a train derailed outside East Palestine, Ohio. The toxic cargo purposefully ignited in a disastrously ill-advised attempt at environmental remediation has now sparked fears of what the effects of the chemicals released over the town will be for the people, livestock, and the ecology in and beyond East Palestine. Media covering the crash is poisoned too, as is now the common pattern, with differing political agendas piling on across social and legacy news platforms to leverage the story to their various advantage. David Rovick's frequent essays on political issues and societal observations are featured at Counterpunch and DissonantVoice.org, among other places. He's a broadcaster, musician, blogger, and author of the novel A Busker's Adventures. His weekly program this week with David Rovick's can be found through his website, DavidRovick's.com. 
Substack.com and on Substack, where you can read his essays, listen to his hundreds of original songs, and catch his myriad interviews on topics of social relevance. His recent article, Communications for Indie Musicians Then and Now, is a reflection not only on his quarter century making a living as a touring musician, but of living and working in our mediated times. His new album is Killing the Messenger, due out any day now. Welcome back to the program, David. Thank you, Chris. Great to be back with you. Well, it's always fantastic to speak with you. And now you've got a new song just out commemorating uh, the event at East Palestine. And like so many of your songs, uh, they are a chronicle of our times, uh, especially American times. For the people that maybe don't know the background of the story, maybe they don't watch Legacy News at all, which is an increasing number. Uh, what exactly happened uh, on February 9th at East Palestine? Do we know the causes and so forth of this train derailment? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the I think the um, they say the uh, the folks who who know about these things say that there's no question that if the modern brakes uh, braking system was in place as was going to be required after the last major few der- derailments, most notably in Canada, of course, at Lac Megantic, Quebec, in 2013, when 48 people were killed by the oil train that went off the you know, came off the, the bad breaking, understaffed, et cetera. And um, there were there was another derailment in, in Washington state soon after that, which was pretty much an identical situation, except without the people. It happened in the middle of nowhere. So nobody got hurt in that. But, uh, you know, it could have been in the center of a town like it was in Quebec. There's these trains going through uh, cities all over this country, including mine here in Portland. The the braking um, systems that were supposed to be uh, dated uh, back at after 2013 uh, were never updated because the rail lobbyists, uh, the freight lobby, you know, the rail lobbyists uh, lobbied Congress, both parties, and uh, ultimately got the bill defeated, and it was never re put out there. So basically, it it just never happened. The, these changes never happened. And of course, the rail system itself, regardless of the brakes of the trains they're using, the rail system is really old and dilapidated and, you know, basically unfit for the kind of speeds, even though they're slow, that the freight trains are traveling at. And that's also the part of why some of the derailments have happened, like in Washington state at, um, several years ago. This, uh, yeah, this, and the, this train in East Palestine was apparently traveling on track that was basically hadn't been updated much since the 1860s. I'm ashamed to say I don't know what the Canadian situation is regarding the rail system here. I know that there's loads of uh, derailments going on, that the, the infrastructure here is aged. Uh, I don't know if we've got the same corporate uh, lobbying power in Canada as in the United States where they can dictate policies and then you know cut corners to, to maximize their profits the way they, they do in the States. I, I was surprised to read how profitable the rail industry actually is. It's one of the most profitable investment industries in the United States because of their profit ratios, because they they don't they don't spend the money on upgrades and so forth, and they just take the crashes as the cost of doing business rather than the huge expense of up, upgrading their and maintaining properly the rail systems, which uh, I know is fantastically expensive. When you mentioned uh, Lac Magentique, that uh, 
disaster in Quebec in 2013. They, the rail cars there, it was again with the, the brake systems, they'd parked, it didn't derail in the sense that this train did as, as it was moving forward, but it has actually parked and rolled backwards down into the town into the town because the parking brakes didn't work and they only had one guy on board when there should have been more uh, you know monitoring it they weren't monitoring the quality of the brakes and it rolled down the hill and its uh, cargo of petrochemicals exploded in the heart of the town killing as you said 48 people and, and blowing out the whole heart of this picturesque little uh, quebec town but um in this case some video of the train that derailed in east palestine people had waiting at crossing uh, in their cars were videoing the fire coming out of the wheels of this train as it passed by and yet nothing happened to stop it before its eventual uh, climactic catastrophe yeah i think in canada there were they did make some kind of a change to the law after that uh, disaster and th th they increased the staffing minimum on like you can't have 72 cars with only one engineer in it you have to have two now believe is, is what, what what I recall. Well, you know, in this country now, because of the pipelines being blocked or stopped or uh, as a workaround, more and more of the tar sands oil and other noxious pro uh, uh, products are being transported by rail in this country. Uh, and some of these cars are miles long. You know, David, years ago when I was a young man, uh, my brother and I jumped a freight train, you know, like in the, in the Woody Guthrie tradition. Mm and uh, rode it into the woods of northern Ontario where it stopped in the middle of the night in the middle of the summer. Uh, we, were so, we were such uh, uh, noobs, we didn't realize what that meant, but we're soon almost devoured alive by mosquitoes and black flies. And so oh, we God, ran yeah. to take shelter from the boxcar to one of the, the, the engines, you know. And mm. we had to run in the dark along the track for half a mile. And that wow. was back in those days. I think the trains are even bigger bigger now mm -hmm. how big was this train do you know let's see several dozen cars 11 of which were full of toxic chemicals i can't remember the number altogether but um the uh apparently there there are laws around like um if you have fewer than 50 cars of toxic chemicals uh, then it doesn't need to be even mentioned to the local authorities that it's coming through right. if it's more than 50 then they have to mention some some kind of crazy thing like that yeah, well, you talk about it. Well, it's, so so now you you wrote the song East Palestine. What? Tell me about it. Well, I mean, honestly, there's just so many disasters going on all over the world all the time that I don't write about, and um, I think oh, I should write something about that. But um, yeah, with with this, it just um, it just came on me that when I was noodling around on on the guitar, I came up with an idea for a song about it. Really, yeah. but it's just. Um, it's just describing what happened and uh, and describing how um, it was known that these things were going to happen and this was an entirely preventable disaster that was that was uh, that happened because of political corruption. That's the you know the crux of it in, in terms of the the song. Yeah, the the great cloud of toxic chemicals that was shown on television which really brought this uh, this whole disaster to i mean it might not have ever been uh, known in the uh, in the greater media sphere 
had it not been for this boneheaded decision to set alight all of these chemicals at once in, in this effort, as I mentioned in the intro, to, to as it was sold, to mitigate the disaster. But it seems that there was more behind that decision than uh, as it was presented. Do you know any more about that, David? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure there's all sorts of, um, well, there's a, a whole lot of bad things about burning it as opposed to letting it all go down into the ground lots of it went into the ground but there were two there's two creeks that passed through uh, the town both of them were completely uh, poisoned thousands of fish died other pets were have died um, and um, people have been made sick and definitely but but as far as i know the uh, burning of the tanks that were but they didn't burn all the tanks of toxic uh, chemicals. They only burned, as far as I read, uh, a two of them or something like that. And it was because of risk of explosion because the temperatures were getting too high. So that that's what I that's what I read anyway. But um, you know, if if they were also trying to cut corners and avoid cleanup, uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised. I think they've gotten a lot of attention uh, for this, including from the right wing press, which is trying to paint the uh, disaster as as some kind of evidence of uh, the the government's lack of concern for white people. And um, so, you know, I think that now the federal government is getting more involved than they otherwise would have been because of all that right-wing uh, press coverage. And, um, you know, what, what unfortunately I think you, you're not going to hear too much from either the liberal press or the right-wing press is that um, – you know, our our government is corrupt and doesn't care about the working class generally because the working class doesn't bribe them to do things like n- not um, impose regulation on their on the railways, you know, and this is harmful to everybody, uh, especially uh, anybody living near you know, freight lines, which certainly includes a heck of a lot of white people as well as the black people and brown people and native people and all kinds of people who are poor, which is where you tend to be when you, uh, you know, People next to the freight yards are often not the not the folks in the mansions. Well, of course, the other side of the tracks were just being, you know, in prox, you know, the, the nearer the proximity you are to the, the tracks, it's not a place where you want to be because of the noise and everything else. And uh, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, and this whole idea of the media, you know, Pete Buttigieg is the um, the transportation secretary in the Biden administration. He he's been roasted uh, for not going to the site immediately, as has Biden. Uh, and Donald Trump, you know, uh, thinking of train wrecks, he uh, was on the scene uh, and using the occasion, as I mentioned in the intro, in, in the intro, that people have been leveraging this story to their own advantage. And, and Trump was in there, but but Trump had his chance to uh, bring in legislation that would have made trains and uh, freight trains safer on America's rails when he was president. But his administration didn't do anything either. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was uh, the main the, the main failure to to regulate the railways uh, happened prior to his election, but certainly he never did anything about it after went during his four years in the White House. It's uh, they're all trying to, yeah. You, I mean, Buttigieg is, is such a corrupt, is such a useless, useless, uh, you know, politician. He's 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 completely in bed with industry. He's completely incapable of imposing regulation. I mean, he just is he's becoming a laughing stock uh, for that reason, even among the liberals, you know, uh, who, who generally are, are not big fans of of government regulation, lest they be accused of being socialists or something like that. You know, well, we- Buttigieg is uh, is 
I mean, he he just he just writes letters. You know, he he he, phone, he calls the CEO of Southwest Airlines to complain instead of uh, actually passing laws, which is what he's is supposed to be there to do as the transportation secretary. He's it's his job to regulate these industries, and he's not doing that. Well, and like any citizen, he's sitting. I, I can see him now sitting at his kitchen table, writing an angry letter, a letter to the editor, or a letter to the CEO, Mister So and So. You're, you know, <laughs> I mean, but to say a politician is useless—that's that's sort of a redundancy in terms, isn't it? I mean, they politicians don't want to yeah. do anything because anything they do is going to be unpopular with somebody, and especially now in America, and it's true in Canada too, but more obviously so in America, where the political divide is so evenly split where you're sure to piss off 50% of the population no matter what you do. I don't know. It depends on how it's spun and and, and who. I, I think it, it's really all about political corruption at, at the end of the day and, and not so much about polarization you know the polarization is superficial and and uh and, and not really uh not not very real when you really get down to what people believe about most things uh, it, it's these um hot button social issues that everybody's polarized around uh because of media manipulation i think primarily but if you get down to what most people think government is supposed to be there for uh in in basic questions like that uh, there's there's widespread agreement in society in this society about what the role of government should be. It's just when you start introducing words that everybody's heard too much on certain media platforms, you know, that make them think of bad people, you know, bad socialists or bad fascists or whatever it is they've been trained to think is bad, you know, that's when they get all polarized politically. But if you avoid those words and you just talk about, well, should 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 government be responsible for providing housing and health care for everybody? You know, most people say yes, believe it or not. In this country, most people, the vast majority, answer that question with a yes. And uh, that's including Republicans. It's shocking, but it's true. And you can find that with loads of different questions. If it, when, you, when you ask them in, in a neutral, sensible way, you find that we have a socialist majority in this country. They just don't know it. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for reminding me of not falling for the uh, the the red blue uh, yeah. uh, dynamic. This this, this yeah. magician. It's a fake floor. divide. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Grill Radio. I'm speaking today with David Rovix. David is a frequent essayist and a frequent uh, guest on this show, too, over the very many years we've been talking. I don't know what it is, David. I, I can't even remember now, 10 or 12 years anyway. Um, David's yeah. uh, the author of uh, the novel A Busker's Adventures, a, a chronicle of his many adventures. He's been doing this for a quarter of a century now, living as a touring musician. His weekly program is This Week with David Rovix. Uh, you can go to David Rovix, that's with a C R O V I C S dot com. And he's on Substack and he's like just about everywhere else, too, that you can be. He's got hundreds and hundreds of original songs and many more. The, your song map is, is I don't know of anyone else that does anything like that outside of maybe a library of some kind. Uh, we're talking around his recent article uh, that is at uh, counterpunch.org, among many other places, Communications for Indie Musicians Then and Now. We haven't really got to that yet in a big way, uh, uh, David. So let's talk a little bit about that now. This uh, tw- I, I, I pulled up a, a little thing here. Because I'm Canadian 
anytime I hear about media, I think of Marshall McLuhan, of course. And in his uh, book, Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man from 1964, he writes, if you'll bear with me, quote, the medium is the message. This is merely to say that the personal and social consequences of any medium, that is, of any extension of ourselves, results from the new scale that is introduced into our affairs by each extension of ourselves or by any new technology. When you're writing in, in your in your recent piece, David, communications for indie musicians then and now, it really brought it, it reminded me of McLuhan, where we're in this milieu, this new technology that you're on both sides of. Your career began before the social media, as did my show, and uh, and now you've maneuvered into and through it, and you get a perspective because of your great age of. <laughs> Uh, being around before the technology, which gives you an advantage of those that uh, it's always been there for. What's uh, the push of your article? What, 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 what's the thesis yeah. of communications for Indian musicians then and now? And am I just blowing it way out of proportion to drag Marshall? Oh, no, you got it. You, it. No, no, you're nail, you nailed it. And <laughs> I love that quote. It's absolutely true. Yeah, totally. The medium is the message. Or the medium determines uh, the message in a, such a massive way. And I, I've been at this for 30 years now. So it's just, it's the, in the, in the article, I talk about the past 25 specifically because the, the, those are the years during which I have, and most people have had email and access to the internet. Right. So of course we all know lots of geeks who um, were doing the internet as far back as the eighties or, or before then. Um, but uh, the vast majority of, of society, including myself, didn't uh, start using the internet in any, you know, significant way until like 1997 or so. And that was, um, so I mean, it's basically been 25 years of the internet and 17 years of domination of the internet and, and of our communications by corporate social media platforms, like it or not, that's the reality. And um, and these different periods, pre-internet uh, and post-internet, but pre-social media and, and and post social media, you know, have have all been have had massively different aspects to them in terms of uh, how we communicate and uh, how we understand the world and how we um, also um, make a living. And uh, which which I mean, for for anybody like a journalist or a musician or an artist, you know, you use these kinds of means of communication as a sort of a freelance, you know, DIY or, or sole proprietor or whatever. You use these forms of communication to promote your work. I mean, that's the essential use of communication other than just to be human and communicate with other humans is to, uh, you know, it's part of your, your work. You, that's how you sell paintings or get gigs performing or uh, sell your services as a journalist or whatever it is you're doing. So certainly for anybody remotely related to what we today call content creation um you know the internet has has been massive and corporate social media has been massive and it's been massive mostly in a negative way overwhelmingly negative uh in terms of um i mean i i basically break it down into the different uses of uh communication uh, for artists specifically and um for musicians traveling musicians specifically myself and um you know specifically and what the different uses of the internet are for people uh, 
and how we did it before the internet and how we have done it since the internet. And um, I just kind of break it down and, and, I, and basically some things are about as good as they used to be. And, and with some things, there was a temporary advantage of the internet being around that was killed off later by corporate social media. And um, with other aspects, uh, things have just clearly gotten worse. Um, and uh, specifically, some of those ways are, well, one, one way that's that's very well known for anybody familiar with the whole streaming reality uh, is uh, you know, making a living, which has been devastating. But there's so much more than than that. Um, and you know, one of them that I start with is is um, receiving insults because this is a phenomenon that uh, just didn't used to happen in any kind of significant way. Um, that may be different for really famous uh, musicians or movie stars or whatever. I'm sure there's ways that they probably <clears throat> got inundated with negative um, feedback from society uh, when you are a at a certain level of fame. <clears throat> but I think you have to be really famous before you get to that point where that kind of thing might even happen. Because uh, certainly for me, I was um, pretty much, I'd say, as well known in the late 90s as as I have been at any time since then for a variety of different reasons. And uh, but but still at no point um, before uh, social media um, did I get deluged with with daily uh, insults um, about my uh intelligence or my music or uh, who I have talked to on my YouTube channel or whatever it is people uh, think they need to that publicly denounce me for, you know, that just didn't <laughs> used to happen. That's a well, you do, thing. you do right that, oh, there was a time when I used to get insulting phone calls from some dedicated guy who didn't like me. And sometimes he'd call <laughs> as often as daily. I mean, first of all, do this that guy. guy and secondly, has this one guy become the, the is maybe he was the prototype for the modern communication system that followed. Yeah. yeah. And who knows how many, how many actual trolls are there on Reddit and, and, and Twitter and how many of them are the same person. It's that guy. It's, it's that you know, same guy. It, it could be the same guy. I mean, you can tell that, that uh, many of the accounts are the same uh, person because of the way that they either that or they're all listening to the same podcast or something because they, they love to use exactly the same vocabulary and, they exhibit the same kinds of bizarre kind of macho behaviors, you know, coming from people that are supposed to be leftists, which is always a bit odd when they start with this macho sexist stuff. And I think, oh, who are these people and who are they even pretending to be? I'm not even sure who, you know, if it's an agent pretending to be a leftist, they're getting it wrong because the leftists are, are not supposed to make macho uh, sexist statements. That's not a leftist kind of thing to do generally. You know, so then I wonder who are these people? I don't even know who they're pretending to be. But there's there's clearly they, they clearly want to pretend to be a lot of people. You know, they, they want to appear to be uh, numerous and, and the platforms make it extremely easy for, for them to do that. You know, I mean, these platforms, if they weren't designed by intelligence agencies who are bent on on uh, atomizing and society and destroying the left and and, um, you know, polarizing everybody into little camps and fiefdoms. If they weren't designed for that purpose, they should have been because they're doing exactly that really effectively and very profitably at the same time. 
Well, well, that leads to uh, something that uh, another piece that you've written, and it's at Counterpunch, and I really want to talk about uh, Robert Hoyt. But thanks a lot, David, for coming on again and for all the work that you do. And good luck on your the next leg of your continuing uh, world adventure. Thank you very much, Chris. Great talking to you. All right, then. And I want to also thank uh, Jeremy Kuzmara for coming on. That's all I've got for this week. Until the next time. Thanks again, David. You can hear the time bomb tick in the town of East Palestine. Acrid air across the county. Who knows whether to stay or flee? The EPA says it's all clean. It says so on this machine in the town of East Palestine. The next disaster's coming soon, as early as the rising moon. The air, the water, and lives at stake. But we can't make them get new breaks. Just ask the folks in East Palestine Just ask the folks in East Palestine
So when the walls close in, you can still see the sky. There are so few things on which you can depend, but you can count on this star to shine without end. And when you see this star, think about me, about the times we had. Get to be Look for the star And know when you do That I'll be watching this star And thinking of you That I'll be watching this star And thinking of you I'll be watching this star and thinking of you Good, bad, and ugly news on Gorilla Radio. A century of news every week. Thank you.